Tuesday, December 14th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hill, and before I welcome in a familiar voice, I want to share a little bit of news, and that is producer Dan Boyd and I are moving. Later this month will be the last episode in this podcast feed because, to borrow from the great LeBron James, we are taking our talents to the Motley Fool Money feed. Starting in January, we're going to be turning Motley Fool Money into a daily show. So, whether you started listening to this show in the past month, the past year, or you've been one of the dozen since we started this show in 2011, I really think you're going to like what's coming in January. If you're not already following Motley Fool Money on whatever podcast platform you use, please do that because that is where you're going to be hearing from me and the other people that you're used to hearing on this show starting in January. And we want you to weigh in. We want to get your thoughts on the topics that you enjoy hearing about. So we have a short four-question survey that we have put in the episode description. You can just click that link. It shouldn't take more than one minute to fill out. We do want to hear from you, so thank you for doing that. More details to come, but I am really excited for the next phase of Motley Fool Podcasting. With that, let me welcome in Asa Sharma. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me as always, Chris. Um, We're going to dip into the Fool mailbag. We've got two very different business types to discuss, and we're going to start... We're going to start with Beyond Meat, because shares are up more than 7% this morning. The maker of plant-based meat substitutes got an analyst upgrade based on the potential for Beyond Meat's national launch with McDonald's, um, possibly happening in the next few months. And when I read this, I immediately thought of our colleague Emily Flippin, because we talked about Beyond Meat briefly on the most recent episode of Motley Fool Money. Um, and in that case, it was the fact that Taco Bell had essentially um, rejected the, the you know, the, they were going to have a, a little bit of a partnership with Taco Bell. Taco Bell essentially rejected um, the product that Beyond Meat had sent. And uh, we made the obvious joke that, boy, when, t- when Taco Bell is, is rejecting you on quality, that's, that's really saying something. And em- Emily immediately led with, hey, look, they, they've got partnerships with McDonald's and some other um, uh, big national outfits. And so, um, this, this seems like, uh, for people who are bullish on Beyond Meat, this is the type of deal they want to see happen sooner rather than later. I agree, Chris. If you're a Beyond Meat shareholder, this is good news. If you're the first mover in an industry and you bring new technology to the market, whether we're talking software or here we have alternative meat or plant-based meat, it takes a lot of partnerships to get your brand accepted. It takes years of development, so much investment. And in this case, you've got a business which has trouble making money. I mean, they have to spend on several fronts in new distribution, in the experimentation with new items. They build manufacturing capacity in Asia. A um, lot of new people they have to hire on. So Beyond Meat is in this long-term game of extending its brand while it's going to lose money. So, when you see something like this, that McDonald's is going to move forward potentially in about three to five months with the McPlant and that the tests are going well as far as the the analyst who 
um, recommended the stock this morning has been able to note in, with channel checks. I think you have you know that beginning of long-term traction coming, but it's always one step forward, one step back in this industry. It's it's a nascent industry, and you know we should stress here that the partnership with Taco Bell, both parties say, is still strong, but you you have these setbacks. I think for Beyond Meat, the trick is really going to be to capitalize on this brand and to penetrate even further into the grocery aisles. That's where, over the long term, they'll make most of their money. But this is positive. Brand is everything. And, and when you're present in the drive through with McDonald's, it's a huge boost. What is the potential, you think, for... And I, I know, in general, we don't want to go into investments when we buy a stock. We don't want to go in with the mindset of, I really hope this company gets acquired. But it seems to me is that Beyond Meat, and you can throw Impossible Foods in there as well, um, there is a greater than 0% chance that um, someone comes along and says, we like what you're doing, we think, we can, we think you're going to do better inside of our ecosystem, and, and makes them an offer. So, I, all of that is prelude to, what would you say the chances are that in three years, this is still a standalone public company? Yeah, I actually think in this case, the chances are fairly high that they'll be here as a standalone company after several years. They play in a really specialized space in this market. I mean, they developed their own take on alternative meat. It depends on uh, pea protein isolates. So, it's not something that readily lends itself just to plugging in and moving up in terms of scale if you are an industrial producer. So, we've got the, the big agro giants who might be ones to consider taking this company over, but they already have their plants set up in place. And I think for them, it's more about just the marketing of it to take what they've got in house, repurpose it, repackage it, make it look good, uh, and then spread it through their distribution footprints. So I don't think they're just quite as interested in this little novel technique that Beyond Meat is using. And, and for that, I don't see a lot of other big consumer packaged companies that might be interested. So, just because of their their own tech, which is specialized, I, f- I feel like they're going to be around. Of course, now look, tomorrow, th- there'll be an announcement. I'm going to be proven wrong, <laughs> but at least for today, <laughs> there'll be a standalone company. I said we were going to talk about two very different types of businesses. So, now that we've talked about plant-based meat substitutes, let's talk about pest control. Terminix Global, which is a pest control company based in Tennessee, is being acquired by its British rival, Rentakill. It is a cash and stock deal worth $6.7 billion, and shares of Terminix are up 20%. Shares of Rentakill down 11%, which immediately makes me think that investors don't like what Rentakill is paying. They may like the deal. In principle, they don't like the price. Yeah, and you know, before I comment on investors' reaction, Chris, I want to take a moment here to celebrate our friends across the pond. And I'm not talking about rental kills specifically, but I'm talking about our friends, the British, who are so great at coming up with really cool brand names based on Latin cognates. So, for those of you who watch All Creatures Great and Small, it's a PBS show, or have read the wonderful novels by James Harriet. You probably are familiar with the scene in which James Harriet, this young veterinarian in uh, turn of the century, 20th century England, finds himself out late at night and has to stop at 
what is essentially an early form of a truck stop. And he, he sides up, up to the counter and there are all these really um, huge rustic farmers and truckers sitting around. So to, to look macho, he orders a bovril, which is still around today. This takes the, the Latin term for, for cow bovine and makes it into this sort of manly beef tea. I love the way the British built their brands around this system. And in that same time frame, Rentokill was developed as a brand, a pesticide brand. It was originally called Entokill for insect, Latin for insect, but there was a trademark dispute. So the company became Rentokill. Anyway, kudos to the British for this. Now, as for the reaction in the stock prices, Rentokill has been a serial acquirer of other companies for decades. They usually do this without much regard for how the market is going to react. And I think this is pretty much par for the course as far as Rentokill's management is concerned. This is a company that does specialize um, in the UK, in Europe, Asia, uh, everywhere in pest control services, but they also pay, play in the hygiene space. So. They uh, provide soaps, hand sanitizers, they rent all kinds of uniforms. Uh, we see some companies that are very similar here in the US like Unifirst. And for them, this is their typical acquisition to extend a footprint in a core business. This company trades at uh, total enterprise value to EBITDA, that is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization of almost 19 times. But in Terminex, uh, based in the US, of course, they're getting a company which trades at a slightly lower multiple. I believe it trades around 14 times when you take its total enterprise value versus its EBITDA. So it's a little bit of a bargain there. Uh, Terminix, I should note also, is a brand name formed from a Latin root, term, terminus, to, uh, terminate, etc. So uh, we have two really fun brand names here that will merge together. I think this is a good acquisition for, for the British company. It's a slow growth industry, Chris. I mean, Terminix has, I think, an organic growth rate of something like 4%. You just don't soar in your year-over-year -year revenue when you're selling pest control services. Uh, on the other hand, they've modernized the way they go about it. So they do use, uh, I think, uh, a wider range of technology. Some of that is more friendly for those who don't like the idea of, of harsh chemicals. Um, and they use a lot of tech to market now their services. So to me, this isn't a bad uh, acquisition for Rentakill. I understand why Terminix shareholders are uh, happy. I think over time, this is accretive for the British company and will turn out to be just another great acquisition. Fast forward past today to the next three to five years. Yeah, I think if you're a Terminix shareholder, you, you have to be happy with this deal because uh, Rollins, which is a company we talk about from time to time, uh, the parent company of Orkin, um, is one of their rivals here in the United States. And Rollins is just flat out a better stock, a better business. Um, it's roughly twice the size of Terminix, and uh, the stock has outperformed Terminix. So I think if, if you're a Terminix global shareholder, you're hoping that the immediate reaction with Rent-A-Kill stock is not so bad that they rethink the price that they are paying, because I think you want this deal to go through. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the deal will go through. Uh, Rent-A-Kill tends to use a little bit more leverage in their operations, and there will be some synerg synergies there, too, to realize. So, 
um, all in all, just changes a landscape that it doesn't see much transformation. I mean, there's glacial change in this industry, but a fun deal to contemplate and uh, really interesting acquisition in a time where maybe, you know, as we're, as we're in this post-COVID environment, Terminex is a little cheaper than it might have been. So I, again, think smart on Rent-A-Kill's part, and we'll see, uh, you know, in, in a year or so how this deal looks in retrospect. Got an email from Wayne Weneman in Seattle who writes, I have stock in GE right now. What happens to that stock in the breakup of GE when they split up the company in a few years? Does it stay GE? Does it convert to some new companies? Or has GE not said yet? The answer will determine if I cash in and put the money elsewhere or stay the course. Uh, thank you for that, Wayne. Um, there are a couple ways we can go here. I mean, obviously, uh, this, is a, this is a question about General Electric, but it's it's a question for anyone who uh, is dealing with either the breakup of a company or the spin-off of a company. We, you know, we talked last week about Intel getting ready to uh, spin off uh, Mobileye in 2022. So that's something that uh, Intel uh, shareholders will have to deal with. Um, in terms of GE proper, um, I, I believe the split up is happening over a multi-year period, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct, Chris. This is going to happen over uh, essentially two years. So next year, we will see the spin out of the healthcare business. It's going to be, uh, I think, early in 2023. So I shouldn't say next year. We're still in 2021 by a few days. <laughs> but let's say uh, early 2023. That will be a tax free uh, spin off as these deals usually are. So if you hold GE shares now in early 2023, you'll get shares of the new company, which itself will be publicly traded. I believe GE is going to retain roughly a 20% interest in that company. And then in 2024, GE will spin out its renewable energy business. And current shareholders will get shares of that new company. Shareholders will then be left with what's going to be an aviation-focused company, the original GE, which was umpteen conglomerated business divisions just a few years ago is going to become a company that's just focused on one industry, the end of a long story of market dominance in the US. Not, not to get off on a tangent here, but to answer Wayne's question, who's trying to make a decision, hey, do I hold shares? Do I, do I sell these? Academic studies actually show that a parent company, and you have to take this with a grain of salt, but by and large, when parent companies spin off smaller divisions that are faster growing, often the effect is something you wouldn't expect. The parent company does a little better in its share price than it might have otherwise if you look over long periods of time, say a five to seven to 10 year time horizon. And that's for the, the reason that management of the parent company can focus on the true core business of the company. What happens to those spun-out companies? They tend to perform pretty well in most cases because you have a dedicated management team that focuses on what might, and in many cases, have been a uh, ignored stepchild. Now, this is not true in GE's case. They had many stumbles uh, among various divisions over the years. But I see something like this perhaps playing out. I think shares in all three companies have the potential to do well. They'll be very competitive in these three big markets. So, um, not to give any personalized investment advice because we can't, Chris, but I think the average shareholder at GE should look to see what kind of 
uh, potential there is in holding shares of three competitive companies in three growing industries and then make a decision? I mean, the reason I own shares of PayPal is because I was, and still am, an eBay shareholder. And that's been out, has worked wonderfully for me and wonderfully for anyone else who's in the same situation. I'm not saying that's going to be the case with the various divisions that GE spins out. But, you know, this, this is something I think we talked about at the time of the news, and it's worth revisiting. It really does seem like I, it would be an overstatement to say, uh, to use a phrase like the death of conglomerates. But I, I think it is accurate to say that conglomerates have lost their shine over the last 20 years. There really is a, um, uh, there is less of a case for businesses like GE. And my hunches will see fewer of them in the future. I tend to agree, Chris. I think when technology changed at a slower rate, there was a lot to love about the biggest conglomerates because they were so dependable. They turned off, tur- turned out really great cash flow. Um, could always rely on one or two divisions to step up in any given quarter if, if some were lagging. It seemed like a great recipe for long-term success for investors. But the rate of change is so fierce now in technology, it's difficult to stay on top of one industry. Just try now to, to stay dominant or, or close to dominant in three to four, five, or seven or eight industries. It's nearly impossible. So that business structure makes less and less sense as time goes on. But you know, the pendulum always swings back. There'll be a time, who knows when it'll be, maybe a few decades from now, where we'll see something like this arise again. Maybe it will be tech conglomerates. I have no idea. Um, ideas go out of fashion and then conditions change and we take another look at businesses that, that have fallen out of favor. So maybe this model comes back. But for now, yeah, I just I think it's really hard to, to pull off these days. Asa Charma, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out that survey link in the episode description. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm going surfing for Christmas Day.